Welcome everyone. We are now live, the panel discussion. So welcome to the Front End Happy Hour panel discussion. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Front End Happy Hour is actually a regular podcast that has a variety of different topics, uh, whether it be software engineering topics to career discussions. Uh, it features a regular panel of engineers working at companies in the Bay Area. We often have a lot of great guests on too, so that's always been a lot of fun. So we thought, hey, why not do a front-end happy hour panel discussion at QCon this year? So that, that's been exciting. This is the first time we've ever done that. For our discussion topic today, we wanted to keep it you know, fairly broad. So we're going to be talking about kind of all things front-end patterns. So we'll be talking anything from TypeScript to React to React hooks. Who knows where we'll go with this. We also want to encourage you all listening to jump into the chat and feel free to start asking us questions. We will definitely be getting to audience questions. But before we jump in, I also want to uh, invite two of the speakers from QCon, Ben and Jason, uh, who were just recently speaking on the tracks. Can you both give introductions of who you are and what you do? Okay, I'll go. So uh, I'm Jason Langsdorf. I work at Netlify as a developer experience engineer. I also host a live stream a couple times a week called Learn with Jason, where I pair program with people to learn something new in 90 minutes. And I like learning stuff and building stuff. I'm really, really happy to be here. This, this show has been one that I have wanted to be a part of for a long time. I'm very sad that I haven't had a chance to actually be there to do it in person, but, uh, you know, silver lining, pandemic times make remote podcasts possible. <laughs> that is true. That is very true. All right, go ahead, cool. Ben. Yep. My name is Ben Alegbadu. I am a front-end engineer at Stitch Fix. I was actually on Jason's show recently. It's a ton of fun. Um, so I highly recommend folks uh, check it out. And I've always wanted to be on front-end happy hour as well. So this worked out well. So <laughs> happy to be here. Cool. Well, and we've got two of our, well, including myself, but two of our uh, panelists that are on the front-end happy hour, Stacy and Jem. Can you both give introductions of who you are and what you do? Stacy, I'll let you go first. Sure. Hi, everybody. I'm Stacy London. I'm a senior front-end engineer at Atlassian, soon to be joining uh, the Triple O team. I'm currently on the uh, front-end platform team. Right on. Jem, go ahead. Uh, Jem Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. And uh, I also have been on Jason's show. It's, it's like a rite of passage. <laughs> Well, apparently Stacey and I have not yet, so we may have to uh, join let's, Jason let's at book some it. point. Let's put it on yeah, the book. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. So let's jump right into questions. I'm hoping to see more questions from the audience too, but right now I've got some questions for you all. This is a big one. I always think of like, when is the right time to use a JavaScript framework? And I, I feel like everyone has their own feelings around this, but I'm curious, what makes you think, yeah, this is the right time I pull out a framework? It, there's a lot of questions you have to ask first to say like, well, what, what is it that you're building? Why are you building it? Who's building it? Or is it just something for fun for you? Then obviously maybe you don't use a framework because you're just trying to like play around. But if it's on a team, maybe at a big company and you know there's going to be a lot of people working on it over time, maybe you want something that helps you define patterns or force you into structuring your code in a certain way because that makes it easier to maintain in the long run. So a lot of questions like that, you know, are you building a content-based site that's just maybe some static content versus something that's really dynamic and might need more complex libraries to help you manage state, things like that. Those are like a lot of questions that I usually ask myself. I have this saying 
that um, whenever I see or hear a company saying, oh, we're using vanilla JavaScript, all, all that means is that they have a undocumented internal JavaScript framework because so you're you ultimately going right to create out of patterns. Mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yep. You're going to create patterns when you're reusing stuff. And it's like, oh, let me abstract this. Let me abstract this. But then it's undocumented, untested. So now you have your own that then is hard to hire for. So I definitely co-sign what uh, Stacy was saying. Is that when you got a team, it's just good to have something that already exists that's documented that people can point to and use that. Ben, you're saying we shouldn't write our own frameworks every single time? <laughs> that's, that's what I'm hearing? That, all is, right, all right. that is, that was heavily applied. Okay, I think that's there's, not, just want to make sure. But there's like a gradient with this, right? So like you, it, like, I think what it is, is whenever you, if you're not using a framework, you're writing a framework. And I think that's absolutely true. But in a lot of cases, if you're building something that's small, every framework comes with a set of assumptions and context and things that you need to understand. So if you're, if you're introducing React or, or Vue or, or whatever for something that is pretty small, that's a lot of assumptions and overhead to have to learn, even though React and Vue and all these frameworks are really well tested and really well documented. So if the only assumption that somebody needs to make is like, well, we're using you know, the, the JavaScript fetch API and the whatever HTML web audio API, those are both also pretty well documented. So if there's not a lot of abstraction, if you're not building something really complex, sometimes the trade-off is actually higher to learn something big even though your your framework, you know, your little tiny framework is undocumented and untested. So I, I think that it's a consideration that very much comes down to what Stacy said. Like you got to look at what you're building, who's going to be yeah. using it, how long is it going to live, how how big can it scale? Yeah, that how long it's going to live is a key part because they all start small <laughs> and they all start as like, oh yeah, we're just going to do this little thing. And then you add something, and you add something, and then you have your own internal framework. Yeah, unfortunately that that's always the problem too right like <laughs> it, it's not always you don't know how long it's going to last sometimes either yeah. like i don't go and be like oh i'm just creating this start small and then it continues to grow and that's like wait this legacy code is now like years old and i probably shouldn't have done this uh, taken this approach that has happened to me many times and i still have not learned that my lesson on that so i, I don't know if i'm the best to give advice on it <laughs> And that's always a fun, that's a fun thing to walk into too. When it's like, you know, I, I worked at IBM and I remember walking into one section of the code base. It was like, oh yeah. So our, our website is actually the, uh, the marketing site we built for a conference in 2006. And then it just kept growing. So it was like this, it was absolutely a disposable site that just never died and became completely yeah. critical to the, the core of the company. Yep. I've feel like I've been there many times, Jason. Like, I don't know. Um, yeah, Stacy, you had mentioned static site generators or static sites. And I'm curious, you know, kind of similar vein is where do you start to, you know, maybe it's just the complete opposite. There's no interactions and you're like, that's when I would use it. But when do you start to lean that like, yes, a static site is the right tool for the job? I guess it definitely like heavy content. So you're really like maybe, you know, obviously like blogs or maybe marketing sites where there's just a lot of text and a lot of copy things that you're not asking the user to do a lot of interaction, like click a thing, make a choice, do this next step or workflows, complex workflows. Yeah. Things where it's just really like a lot of, of uh, just content reading, not a lot of interaction. I guess that's how I'd classify it. Yeah. I, th I think for I have... me too, it's when often too, when there's like something that's fairly easily templated too, right? I love that you said a blog 
an article, things like that. You just have these set principles that you're like, yeah, it, it, it's not cha constantly changing. I have these like maybe three different templates that uh, content falls into. And that's just really easy to just generate more and more content out of it. And don't necessarily need to rely on a database, which is amazing too. I, what have you define uh, what a static site is just in case people aren't clear? Go for it, Jason. You were about to talk anyways. So. I, okay, so I'll, I'll, kick off, I'll kick off with the definition and then I'll, I'll present a potentially controversial opinion. But um, so a static site is when you take all of the data and all of the code that you're going to use for the site and you compile it ahead of time. And what you're left with is a folder full of assets that you can serve. You could upload them to FTP on any server and they'll just work. So you can put it on a CDN, which is the kind of the standard way to do it and you get really high performance and there's there's no more servers or databases or anything kind of in between. It's just the compiled assets left, which means that the, the uh, distance between the person requesting the files and the files themselves is really, really low. There's no, uh, no chain that has to go through anymore. And because of that, that's actually what's led me to what is maybe my controversial opinion, which is that I default to static sites. And in, instead of saying, when would I use one, I'm arguing the other way. I'm like, what am I doing that wouldn't work as a static site? Because anytime you introduce something that's not static, you're introducing something that can break in production. If you've got a server, that server can get overwhelmed by a lot of traffic. If you've got a database, that database can go down. So if that chain can cause your website to fail in production, I need to have a really good reason to make that dependency. So typically I'm, I'm more focused on like, how do we make this whole thing static? and then use some combination of serverless functions or async JavaScript to do that dynamic stuff on the client side. So that even if that part does go down, the app itself is still live. We can present like, hey, we're having some database trouble, refresh in a minute, as opposed to just getting a 500 error. Yeah, I think the introduction of loading states or the prevalence of loading states, I would say, in our apps really helps that. So mm -hmm. you can statically generate a shell of maybe empty content in a loading state or some content in a loading state, but at least something that displays and then fetch API, get the data mm -hmm. and then populate it there. So yeah, I like that approach. I just started using Next.js and that's kind of the approach that they take. It's like start static and then ideally start working your way up to dynamic content that way. I like that. Slightly, yeah. I have a, a slightly disagreeing pick with Ben, which is, you know, we don't often disagree. I, I think people abuse loading states too much. Mm -hmm. uh, I see it more and more often <laughs> where people are like, it's a single page app. So once it loads, it'll all be seamless. But that five to 10 seconds sometimes are just blank. Like yeah. uh, it should have just been a static site and then they progressively load in that other thing. So yeah, yeah, you're totally right. It's just uh, yeah. the further you go down that path, the more you have to pay attention versus if you go uh, just a simple static site, it's always going to work. It's always going to yeah. load pretty quickly. Yeah. You could yeah. move it, it really well, easy too. That's another thing that's really nice. Like you just dump it on another server, move it. It's you don't have to do it much at all. Yeah. 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 I mean, I like one of the things that I think is really interesting about it is so for example, um, I've got a friend who I built a site for back in the, you know, like the early two thousands. And it's a WordPress site and he wanted to do a, an update to it. So we switched it over to be Gatsby on the front end with WordPress as an API to provide the data. Mm -hmm. And at some point in the last three years, his WordPress site just went down. Like the server died. We don't know what happened. 
Um, but no one ever knew because the static site was built from the data, not relying on the data. And the only reason we found out is because he went to write a post for the first time in two years and was like, hey, my, my site's down. And I was like, wait, no, it's not. I went and I looked at it. And I was like, here, it's up. He goes, yeah, but I can't write something new. And I was like, oh, your WordPress site is down. And so it was, it's kind of a, it's a cool feature and, you know, kind of like that fragility goes away. Um, and I, I really like that, you know, kind of like what you said, like, and we can move that around. We don't need specialized WordPress hosting to host this guy's site. We can put it on anything, you know, AWS, we can throw it up on, you know, <laughs> we can put it on like DreamHost on a, a yep. like a single shared host and it's just going to work. So we have, we have a couple of questions in, uh, from the audience too, which is great. One from Matt here that he's, he identifies as a backend engineer working on a full stack team and says he's hesitant to dive into the front end code due to what t- for him looks like really confusing and poorly constructed code. It could be mm-hmm. a symptom of the company's former startup uh, mentality of build fast culture. Or is it the feeling that the code is, you know, front end code is almost more complex to what code on the back end is? And it's really funny is, you know, I, I feel like I get what Matt's getting at here too, is like, I've definitely worked with a lot of back end engineers who will jump into the front end and they're like, this is very complex and confusing. I'm sure we've probably all similarly heard things like that. Is that true? Do you all find, like, I know each of us have probably worked a little bit maybe in the back end or a little more full stack. Do you find that it's difficult or like harder on the front end uh, from back end or that things are more complex? I guess one thing I've noticed, like with React as an example, I mean, React is just the the view layer, right? And it's just a small piece of, of perhaps a complex puzzle. Um, and, so, and there's a lot of different ways that you can construct that application and, and patterns you could implement as a team. And there is no one best way. And so if you go from company to company, you know, that quote React application is going to look very, probably very different. And I think that's part of that confusion. You can't just go to another company and pop right in and be like, oh, this, this app is ex- constructed exactly the same as my last one. Um, so there's a lot of flexibility there, but then that, and that's on purpose. Like there's a, there are pros and cons to like micro libraries versus, you know, some, something like say like Ember as an example that enforces a lot of structure and enforces a way of doing things. So the Ember app is, if you go to another company will look very similar. So mm-hmm. it kind of depends on what you've used to implement your front end, uh, what framework you've used or library, but it can, yeah, there, it's going to look pretty different no matter where you go. I feel like that holds true on the back end too, though. So like if, you know, if we're talking about a, um, like a Laravel app, there's a lot of opinions that go into that and, and like structure and, and guidance. If you're looking at like a roll your own PHP backend, it feels pretty much like any JavaScript code base. There's chaos, there's type inference there, you know, things go wherever they go. And so I think it, it kind of comes down to what backend are you coming from and how much overlap contextually is there between your backend language and the, the backend decisions that were made and the front end decisions that were made. Cause like, I, I don't feel uncomfortable moving between the WordPress PHP code base and the, and a JavaScript code base. They feel equally chaotic and weird to me. You just kind of have to learn how decisions were made. Um, but like stepping into an angular code base there, it's super clear. Like angular has so many rules about how you do things and how things get passed around that it always feels the same when you move between angular projects. Uh, so yeah, I, I think that's a, I mean, a, a capital, it depends, but 
And, and to I echo throw, uh, Jason's I'll, point. Oh, go sorry. ahead, Jim. I'll go after you. I, I think you um, say what I say. We're, probably, we're like, you know, we're the same pretty much. So probably will. I think it's easy to confuse uh, structure with well-organized. A lot of languages you use on the back end, like Java or something like that, is going to be strongly typed. It's going to have a hierarchy. So you look at it, it looks organized, but it may actually be a mess that wasn't well-architected. And I think that's difficult to tell just looking at code. On the JavaScript end, yeah, JavaScript's great because you can do whatever you want. That's the pro. The con is you can do whatever you want. And that often happens uh, with JavaScript is yeah. people have different opinions because unless you're using, uh, like Jason said, a framework like Angular, there's no enforcement of any particular pattern in JavaScript. It's, you do whatever you want. So often, yeah, it's easy to look at a front end code and see 10 different people worked on it and see 10 different patterns. And that's easy to do. And I, I guess the, the bigger talk is as a senior engineer, it's your job to go through and clean it up because nobody ever wants to do that because it just keeps running. So I, uh, I forgot who asked the question, but yeah, it's not at all unusual if you feel that way, because that's just kind of the nature of front ends and, you know, the nature of JavaScript. Did yeah. I steal your thunder, Ben? That, no, that was half of it. So you, half of the thunder. Yeah, was that exact point. And the other one is that in general, backend code is simpler because it's single pass, right? Mm. Server comes in, you go to the database, process it, return some HTML, bam, you're done. Whereas on the front end, it's like iterative, you gotta respond to this user interaction, this thing that happened and then the scroll, this thing that, you know, so it's all this stuff that's different, that's happening. It's not a single pass. So trying to organize how all of that should work, um, all of the interactions can be difficult. And mm -hmm. if you don't have predefined patterns and you're just doing it any way you want. And last Tuesday you did it one way, the next Tuesday you're gonna do it another way, then yeah, it can get pretty, it can be pretty messy. And you don't have a guaranteed runtime, sort of like right. some backends, the runtime is pretty exactly. guaranteed. Whereas like, it's not as bad as it used to be, but cross browser stuff is at play, exactly. all that, yeah. Yep, that too. Well, and so, it gets even well, more confusing too, when you start digging into like, like the next code base, for example, in the same file, some of the code you write is gonna execute in node and some of it's mm -hmm. gonna execute in the browser. And so yep. a lot of it is just contextual stuff that you kind of have to, you learn by experience. And, and so I think a little bit of it is stumbling around and, and just trying things to see where they break. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, well put. <laughs> so another question from the audience, Marcel has a good one that may, maybe even it's come up a little bit is when are micro front ends not the right answer? I feel that there is a lot of hype around micro front ends and plenty of people are recommending them for large teams working on a single front end code base without much consideration. Thoughts from all of you? <laughs> Dropping bombs, Marcel. Okay. <laughs> I probably have like lots of opinions, but I also feel like I've been talking a lot, so I don't want to steal the floor here. <laughs> We're always happy to have lots of strong opinions though, Jason. So yeah. you can't just like start like that and then and okay, not yeah. answer. So okay. uh, yeah. All right. Okay, we'll get the hook ready to like pull me off stage when I run over all my right, time. All right, fair. Um, but so, so what I've noticed with micro front ends is that micro front ends have a lot of the similar benefits of microservices. And if you, if you think about them that way and you're thoughtful about the way that you build them, they're really freeing. Um, this is actually a lot of what my talk was about is this idea of kind of optimizing for deletion. You wanna create really clear boundaries between pieces of code so that each individual domain in the code base is isolated, 
clearly defined where it interacts with other things and you can wholesale swap it out for something else because all you have to do is make sure that that surface, that API contract is, is upheld and you can you know, drop out the React, drop in view as long as the APIs are the same, nobody cares. And that makes it really, really, really powerful. The, the catch is that if you're not disciplined about that and you don't think about those API surfaces, you end up with something that is called a micro front end or historically a microservice, but it's leaky. And like code bases in general, we've been talking about this. They live for a long time, they're fluid. And that makes them leaky by default. If you're not structured, if you're not rigid about the way that you do these things, someone's gonna reach into your micro front end and use something that was supposed to be internal. And now you depend on that forever. And it means that if you try to change your micro front end, you actually can't. So it's no longer a micro front end. It's now part of a like loosely or tightly coupled, very confusing, like multivariate code base. And so if you do your micro front ends with discipline, it's an ultra powerful way to move very quickly and give people a lot of autonomy. If you let that discipline break down, it's going to make everybody super sad. I have strong totally. opinions too. Oh, I'll say them. So my opinion is that micro front ends specifically are a technological solution to a people problem, right? Yes. Like we need all these teams yes. to be able to work independently. So we're just going to throw some tech on it. So then you end up having to throw more tech to counterbalance the problems that the separation have caused. So Jason, the one you mentioned is exact same problem as leaky uh, interfaces. The other one is that front end is different than microservices in that like people are seeing things. So mm -hmm. sometimes we do want those micro front ends to interact. Like if I have something on the left side and something on the right side, well, when I click something on the left side, I want it to do something on the right side, but they're supposed to be independent. So now you got to create contracts and all these things, and that becomes a problem. Then there's two more problems I always see is that one, we want them, want a page that has four different micro front ends on it to look the same. Well, mm -hmm. now we're saying that, oh, if we change the color of the button, we need all of them to sync at the same time. And the second you need things to sync at the same time, like it's like micro front ends were not designed for that which is the problem. And then the last one that's the problem is that you can't just have React and View and this other thing on the same page if you wanna have a performant page. Like, it's just a disaster. Even if you have two versions of React, that's a disaster. So it's like, if you wanna have a, it's like either it's micro front ends, ends up, you end up picking yourself, your team's development over the user who's using your site because then you're giving them four megabytes of JavaScript, so. Mm -hmm. I still use them, but I still have issues with them. I think I also may have been classifying it slightly differently <laughs> because when I think of micro front ends, I'm usually thinking of like one whole route, not like a patchwork of, of tiny front ends on a single page. Um, yep. So I, I would agree with everything you said, including and like up to and including probably don't <laughs> for, yeah. for like a patchwork <laughs> on a single page. <laughs> I think to what you're ultimately both saying is it requires such a high degree of technical rigor. I, I don't recommend them. I don't think most people, most teams are capable of doing it. I speak from experience, at, or at least about microservices at Netflix, we are extremely heavy users. They can be a blessing, but they take so much technological rigor to even enforce a contract between two different things. The complexity is generally not worth it. And then you talk about transferring that to the front end where the surface area is completely different. I have a hard time recommending them to anybody, but like just a team of senior people who all 
know exactly what they're doing. Other than that, you're just asking yourself for, for trouble. And to echo, I guess what Ben was saying, kind of thinking about the user experience a bit too. I mean, the whole reason that we went towards this uh, single page app architecture spa kind of stuff to begin with was to not have to refresh the whole page to see something when you switch routes and you do, you could potentially step away from that. If, you, if like Jason said, it's like a route based micro architecture. Well, is that okay that, you know, you're, you're causing that sort of delay in, in a user seeing something is that, you know, time delay worth it. Um, those are the conversations I think you should have too about like the, the UX of it all. Yeah, that's a great point. Cause like really at the end of the day, what's the best user experience? Like that's what we're creating these applications for. And you don't want right. it to be a poor user experience because it maybe makes your life easier as a developer. You know, that's always good. You want to think about both of those as developer ergonomics, but also what's best for the user. So Jason, you gave a talk on this. So if, yeah. if uh, micro front ends are not good, but you have multiple teams trying to work on stuff, what should we do? So when I'm talking about the, the stuff that I talked about was not necessarily on the same site, but like in a company, you're going to have suites of things. So for example, mm -hmm. you've got your, your community site, you've got your, your uh, information portal, you've got your app front end, you've got marketing splash pages, all of these things. And, and what I've noticed is that those are, that's independent software that ends up styled to look like it's part of the same company. And right. so I think that there are ways that you want that to, you know, as you said, it needs to look like it's part of the same company and we need ways to make that functional, but also it's okay if you refresh the page between the app dashboard and the app homepage. I think that's expected and, and a, a natural thing to kind of count on. I also think when you get into this idea of like, we as companies are under the, especially startups are kind of under pressure to move fast and ship quickly, but we can't break things. Like we've seen what happens when we break things. We cause problems that are kind of up to and including just the you know potential downfall of democracy, right? So we can't move fast and break things. We have to move fast safely. Um, yeah. And if we if we scope down these experiments to be something that that are optimized for deletion, then we have the opportunity to test and learn without having to rewrite our entire code base. And we have the opportunity to build something that we can prove. Like here's the code that lets us prove that this product works. And then when we decide we're going to build it for real we can rebuild it to be part of our core architecture and hot swap the experiment out for the production code in a way that doesn't cause us to have to rewrite a bunch of adjacent code. So it's, sure. it's not necessarily a one-to-one -one between micro front ends and optimizing for deletion in the way that I was talking about it. It's just more that when we're building anything new, we should really think about where it touches and what's going to be reaching into it and make sure that we're thoughtful and, and kind of controlled about that so that we have fewer places that break when, uh, when we inevitably swap something out or make changes down the road. So uh, I thought, you know, we talked a little bit about the back end, right? We talked about that. And then we, I know, I think Jason, you may even mention brought bringing up node and that you have JavaScript on this back end server. I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts is what do you call the back end to your front end stack? I think there's different opinions on this and I'm curious to hear all of your thoughts on that. Do you mean like the front of the front end and then the back end of the front end and then the That's back exactly end of the... <laughs> what I'm getting at, Stacey. Yeah. The fact that you just had to describe that is bang on. It's like, what, yeah. what is the back end? And like, how do you think about it as, as a front end engineer too? Is like, should you be dealing with that? And like, where's, where do you draw the line? Is it middleware? Is it, is it a full back end? 
And if, if you work in primarily in Node, like such as myself, I work primarily in Node, occasionally I'll re touch React. Am I still a front-end engineer at that point? Are you, Jen? I don't consider myself one. I, I work more infrastructure. I, I think the, the mindset around a front-end engineer is different from someone working on the back-end because the request paths are different. Just your idea of what you're trying to optimize and who your customers are. In, in that, this case, my customers are the engineers themselves versus the actual users of the products. So um, I have an experience. I don't know if this is the same for you, Stacey, because we're both on front-end platform teams, is that I actually don't write that much React code either. I'm doing Babel configs and Webpack and things like that. So I, I, I affectionately call it DevOps as opposed to DevOps because it's front-end, you know, <laughs> DevOps. DevOps. So am I a front-end engineer? I'm doing stuff for the front-end, like it's all to that goal, but I'm actually not writing front-end code, UI code all that often anymore. So it's kind of, there's like three places now that a front-end engineer ends up touching because of JavaScript, so. Yeah, it's almost like there's thing. another new role of like front-end DevOps or uh, build tooling optimization yep. stuff. Cause yeah, same, I'm not, I had been working on Node, a Node app doing performance tooling and I've not yep. barely written any React in a while. So yeah, it's Same. it's very different, but it's still like, we're called the front end platform team because it is yeah. in yeah. service to the front end, but. Cause you have to understand what the changes we make, how they impact the front end. So you have to actually know the front end really, really well actually yeah. to, to do that, so yeah. Yeah, when I was at IBM um, that we had a similar setup where there was, there was a front end team, but a lot of the work that that I was doing and that a couple of the other senior engineers were doing, we called it internal tooling was how we ended up referring to it. Cause it was like, how do we make, cause well, actually let me answer the first question and then I'll explain why we called it internal tooling. Because we, um, what we found was like in the front end we were using microservices and that meant that everybody who was going to work on the front end before they could work on the front end had to install Docker. And then once they installed Docker, they had to set up a VPN. Then they had to configure Nginx to reverse proxy all of the rest of the microservices they weren't working with so that things would work. And then they had to configure some other backend stuff and environment variables so that we could use like IBM SAML on, uh, on our local machines. And yeah. all of that is so far outside the realm of a front-end engineer's day job that it would cost us weeks for people to get up and running. We'd hire somebody... They'd come in as a junior engineer and it would be like a month before they were writing code. And that sort of slowdown was such, it was such a brutal like motivation killer. Somebody comes in bright eyed, bushy tailed, they wanna write some code and we're like, okay, great. We're gonna make this super hard for weeks and you aren't gonna get a commit in for, you know, what is it, October? I, maybe by Christmas, right? And so it's like this very kind of demotivational thing. And so a lot of what, what we were doing on the, like the tech lead side was trying to think through how do we make that easier? How can we remove as much of that friction as possible? Which meant that we were writing tooling that was like, let's automate some of that Docker install. Let's see if we can make the whole front end static so we don't need Docker at all. What if we can, yeah. you know, what if we can eliminate this Nginx problem through some kind of a, you know, like this is how I ended up at Netlify, honestly, is I started looking at how to solve these problems and, and Netlify was solving them. So I was trying to figure out how they did it. And then I got frustrated, left IBM, IBM and went to Netlify. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, so I, I think that the, it is like a whole different expertise and it, it shouldn't be one that I think is put on 
front-end developers. And I, I think we should we should hire for that specifically. Like you're not a front-end developer if your whole job is working on front-end tooling. You're you're something different. And I think I like DevOps. I think that's really fun. Um, but <laughs> yeah, it really is like a whole different role. Yeah. Anything anyone else on that? I love all this. I'm like, yes, this is like really a good way to say that. I feel like the front-end role has just kind of been shoved all the things into it and is like you're expected to do all these things when it's actually now become a lot more there's just more roles. Like you said, there's like, you could be still working in the front end, but very specific to the user interface or to a tooling or to the server. There, there's just more and more that's going on, which is kind of interesting. I've, I've definitely seen mm -hmm. that throughout my career. I'm sure all of you have as well. One more thing, which is that there's, you know, and that's just the tooling side. We didn't talk about the node side. Um, and like, yes, there's also the whole thing where if you, if, for like, if you're working on a dashboard, and it's going to be what somebody logs into and sees their account with. They're going to be pulling in data from like the billing team, from the you know from like the usage team, and and all these APIs that are run by backend folks who expose APIs. But those APIs are intended to provide data, not to provide an experience. Which means that there's this whole node layer of like, how do we take raw usage data, raw billing data, and turn that into something that's visually useful to someone yeah. and that creates a whole lot of node work or pre-processing work or, or whatever, some kind of like proxy layer that's transforming raw data into useful data. And sometimes you can push that back onto the backend teams, but I found that that tends to hamstring them because they, they're trying to be everything to everyone and everybody who touches right. that service needs some kind of a bespoke endpoint. So instead it gets pushed up to the front end where now you've got front end developers trying to write node code to like proxy all of this information. And, and I think that's also some of the frustration that backend developers feel when they walk into a front end code base. Because a lot of front end developers just got pushed like way out of their depth to deal with backend code and proxy things. Um, so I think part of it too is it just puts us out of uh, puts us out of our ability to like really do the things we're good at. <laughs> we get dropped into dropped into the deep end and it's like you're gonna do 10% of what you know and 90% of stuff that you have to learn because otherwise you can't do your job. Yeah. Yep. That was awesome. Amazing panel, you all. Thanks, uh, Ben and Jason, for joining us. Where can people listening get in touch with you? I am on Twitter at Jay Langstorff. That's where I probably spend an unhealthy amount of time. And then I'm also on the web at jason.af. Ben. Yeah. So similarly, uh, you can find me on Twitter. It's Ben NVP. Um, you can find me there, ask questions there and stuff, have healthy conversations, dialogues, and whatnot. And then uh, my website is benmvp.com. So either of those two places, it's good, good start. Right on. And, and thank you, QCon, for having us uh, as a panel. This mm -hmm. has been a lot of fun. Jeb and Stacy, where can people get in touch with you? Stacy Lindner uh, on Twitter. And I'm Jem Young on Twitter. And you can find us all on uh, Front End Happy Hour, the podcast. Yeah, I'm Ryan Burgess. Find me at Burgess D. Ryan on Twitter. And yeah, like Jem said, you can, if you're wanting to listen to more conversations like this, we do have frontendhappyhour.com. You can really find us on whatever you like to listen to podcasts on. Uh, thank you all for listening to this panel. This was a lot of fun. And thanks again, QCon, for having us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. you.